Welcome to the Goddesses of Social Work podcast, hosted by Renita Ray Davis, licensed clinical social worker, board-approved social work clinical supervisor, and facilitator of the Goddesses of Social Work supervision community. Join us as we travel through the social work journeys told by the Goddesses of Social Work community members, past and present, as they make their way toward clinical licensure. Welcome to the Goddesses of Social Work podcast. I'm here today with Mrs. Gina Golden, LCSW, NBCFCH. Mrs. Golden helps leaders, healers, and change agents transform the inner critic, injected oppression and imposter syndrome, and out with the outer critics, interpersonal and systemic oppression, to become their ancestors' wildest dreams. Her work centers on communities of culture that have been historically marginalized, including individuals, couples, and families, using a culturally informed, holistic perspective, mind, body, soul-centered. She is a conduit for healing that validates and normalizes her clients' lived experiences, honoring their community's culture nuances, practices, and traditions. Mrs. Golden recognizes the importance of processing transgenerational traumas and celebrating generational triumphs as essential elements to the collective healing of communities. Mrs. Golden is a transformational coach, licensed clinical social worker, holistic psychotherapist, and National Board Certified Fellow of Clinical Hypnotherapy with over 30 years of combined experience in a variety of treatment methods, including solution-focused therapy, tapping, EFT, mindfulness-based stress reduction, interpersonal neurobiology, and racial and transgenerational trauma. Complementary modalities include doula and sacred woman training, Reiki, integrative medicine, crystal healing, and therapeutic uses of essential oils. Welcome to the show, Gina. I'm so glad you're here. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. Wow. Reading your bio, you were speaking my love language. Really, you really were. Recently, I saw something you posted on social media that really stood out to me and got me even more pumped to have you on the show today. Part of your social media post stated, Western concepts of the quote unquote communal dual relationship in our line of work don't consider cultural nuances and our obligation to community and collective healing. Do you mind expounding on that thought? Sure, sure. So um, with a dual relationship, um, when we talk about communal dual relationships, we're talking about ways in which we have uh, a relationship that expands more than like this one dimensional relationship with our clients. So when we're out in the community and we find that this person is our client, but yet also engaged in some other way, um, say maybe we belong to a civic organization together, or we you know, go to the local park together, or we go to the same church or spiritual center, right? That might be seen as a dual relationship. And westernized concepts believe that we as mental health professionals and social workers should not have or try to avoid those sort of relationships. And so it doesn't really recognize how important those relationships are to certain people, like other groups of people value that connection. They value that 
um, communal way of being and that, you know, the way that people um, interact in a community. So various cultures around the world actually see that as a benefit, as a good thing. Um, but the way our rules and laws and, you know, ethics are written, it says this may be a moral or ethical violation of some sort. So it doesn't give credence to the many places around the world that actually find this connection to be quite valuable. Absolutely. Do you, do you find that you know, because you're a clinical social worker like me, do you find that our code of ethics, there's other areas as well that maybe do not um, think about the cultural nuances that those who practice and are being served by us are in? Mm. Mm-hmm. That's a good question. I'm sure, um, you know, if I comb through the social work code of ethics, I'm sure there will be many areas that I could easily say, well, this probably needs to be updated and evaluated and decolonized in some way. Um, even things like gift giving, um, you know, there's this sense that, you know, it's wrong, it's, it's unethical to accept gifts. Now, I'm not saying I accept gifts. However, there are times where people want to share gifts um, and there are times that in social, in certain social and cultural contexts, it's appropriate to accept those gifts because that particular culture might find it to be respectful and or disrespectful if you don't accept their gift. So these are things that we need to start looking at with all of our code of ethics, whether we're social workers, counselors, psychologists, like we need to look at that and see if we are still living up to this very colonial way of, of being and interacting with people. Yeah, I agree. I'm even thinking, Gina, while you were just talking, one of the things that have gone on in this particular platform are discussions surrounding the ASWB exam and how um, women of color are struggling to pass that specifically in the South. I mean, in mm. Alabama, I think the percentage rate is less than 40. It's mm. in the 30s mm. um, percent pass rate. And when you were just talking, I'm wondering, are some of the questions, I know, you know, we're just dialoguing. I know mm. you don't know specifically the, that answer, but are some of the questions about gift giving, about dual relationship, um, that textbook, like you said, more colonized responses, and that maybe some of the reason we're struggling with passing the exam is because what is on the test and what we're doing in our cultures don't match up. I absolutely think that that's a huge part of it. Absolutely. Because even things like, um, uh, you know, some of the questions on the test or the exam might relate to uh, cultural nuances, you know, on the, on the exam and what one person may do in terms of, you know, showing up at someone's home or their school or their, you know, workplace of worship, et cetera, um, might be perfectly fine in their community. But the exam might ding that and say that that's not according to this protocol or that rule or that law. And so it doesn't, it doesn't again, incorporate one's cultural perspective and how other cultures, even within this larger uh, in the context of America, there are multiple cultures 
And there's a multiplicity of cultures. And so we have to recognize that there's just not one way of doing anything. And um, however, people are penalized for um, for answering a test question based on their cultural expectations and norms and traditions um, versus what, you know, the test deem as appropriate. Yeah. Absolutely. And I know we're about to get into your social journey. I'm geeking out right now. I'm just, <laughs> just geeking out right now. But I, I'm going to ask one last question just to kind of get the conversation continue, get people thinking. You know, I think part of the struggle could potentially be those who look like us and are in these cultures who, who know these kinds of things are scared to come out, like reading your bio and you talking about you using essential oils and crystals and the other complementary um, uh, therapeutic approaches that you use, most people just don't outright come out and say that this is what I'm doing because I know this was this what works for my clients and they're doing it, right? So then why am I going to pretend like I don't know anything about it? And so those maybe in the profession are, are you know, in the shadows perhaps and not willing and or maybe afraid to come out and say, hey, this way you taught me is not working for my clients. And I don't know how to say that to you without you dinging me on my license. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I just, you know, I just decided long ago. Um, I just think because of my worldview just coming up, um, I just had a very Afrocentric kind of perspective. I went to Afrocentric um, uh, Afrocentric um, uh, graduate program at Clark Atlanta University. Um, kind of grew up in a pan African um esque household, <laughs> and um and really started to develop that um viewpoint on my own, and it just grew, and so it just kind of coalesced into my social work practice, and so I kind of see the world in this very um, you know, communal from a communal lens, from a cultural lens. I understand um, that we bring our whole selves to spaces. And I also understand that we're more than just these physical beings. So I have this very social justice aspect of who I am. And then I have this spiritual aspect and I just blended them together. You know, I said, I don't have to compartmentalize my life. I can figure out to bring all of me to an environment and I'm both spiritual, I'm holistic and I'm radical at times, you know, so um, so yes, so I, I say that in my bio so that when people, if I speak to someone, they'll contact me because they're like, yes, that's me too. I get it. Or you'll see me, you'll hear me, you'll, you'll validate me or normalize my experiences because I am you and you are me. Right. And so, um, of course, um, obviously I have to keep it professional and all that, but, but it's just the, uh, coming together as human beings, we're just all trying to make our way through this life. And we use various tools to help us feel comforted and supported, grounded and rooted. And so I share those things. Yeah. And you share them very boldly. And I appreciate that. I really do. You started talking a little bit about your social work journey. I'm ready to jump in. Start from wherever you want to and just talk to me about your social work journey yeah. thus far. So I grew up essentially with the ultimate, with the, with the, with the, um, she wasn't really a, my mother, she wasn't a trained social worker, 
but she was a social worker. You know, she did all things home economics. That was her actual uh, field of study when she went to college. But so with that, she learned to sew and create and make things and doll, make doll clothing and just just did all the things. She made all of our clothing. She not only made things, but she taught us things in the kitchen. And not only that, but she played with us um, outdoors. That was a big part of my childhood. Um, that was a um, uh, kind of a psychological and emotional safety net growing up in an environment where the parents were outdoors with us. They played, they reprimanded us, they disciplined us, but they um, they showed us new things and they were just fully engaged in our lives. So I grew up with a huge sense of community. And, um, and so then my mother also worked in psychiatric hospitals as an aide. And so she would come and share all these stories with me. And I was so intrigued. I was like, wow, I was just so intrigued with how people's minds were impacted by their environments, uh, whether it was the social environment or the economic environment or the familial environment or the spiritual environment. You know, it just, I just heard these stories as a young girl and just was so intrigued by it. And I knew that that was something that I wanted to gravitate toward. And so I, I decided that as a young child that I wanted to be a child psychologist. And, um, and so needless to say that evolved and changed over time. I actually met someone in undergrad at Temple University and she started telling me about social work. And I was like, whoa, that, you know, I think it just resonated with me because my mother was that, you know, she, she did all things social work. She, she my mother was the type of person that gathered all the kids in the neighborhood and piled them up in the station wagon and we would go to the circus and the zoo and the art shows and so when this colleague slash friend told me about social work I was like yeah that's what that's called I had no idea that's what I want to do and so she was like yeah and you can do this and that with your degree and you don't have to wait until you get this PhD in psychology you can start working in the field immediately I'm like immediately and she's like yes so I was like okay sign me up and so that's how I got into social work and um, and the rest is history. <laughs> Let's talk about the history. So <laughs> I love it. You know what I wrote? My mother was a social worker too. She was not, you know, she didn't go to college, but she definitely was a social worker and, and, and has raised social workers. So I totally resonated with that. So you are at Temple, that's your undergrad. Did you get your BSW or did you have to, um, transition because you were too far along in your in your major and got your master's in social work. No, I I I just really just I real mm, I did just one semester of psychology before I you know changed my major. So um, I got I received my BSW, my bachelor's degree um, in social work from Temple University, and then I. Um, uh, was accepted at Clark Atlanta University and received my master's degree in social work. So I'm all social work um, and graduated in 1993. And so I've been practicing ever since. And I've worked in private industry, nonprofits, hospitals, school systems, um, homeless shelters, psychiatric hospitals. Did I say hospice already? Um, developmental disabilities, mental health, 
um, yeah, so I just kind of ran through the gamut of social work, which was my goal to be as diverse as possible. I really wanted to experience, um, you know, a plethora of social work experiences so that I can um, really be a sort of well-informed, experienced social worker. And then over time, I, you know, it took me a while um, because I didn't get into private practice until 2015. Um, and so all that time I was doing direct service and I decided to open up my solo practice in 2015. And then I opened up, a, you know, I expanded it to a group practice in 2018. Um, but before that, you know, I had other businesses. I ran um group homes and other community-based services for people with intellectual and developmental disabilities before I started my private practice. And then somewhere between that and opening up my private practice, I went back to school and learned, um, well, it wasn't school, but I took uh, courses in hypnotherapy and became a certified hypnotherapist. And so once I launched my practice, I already had hypnotherapy under my belt and, um, I started adding on, you know, my understanding of, ho of holistic um, treatments and spiritual and energetic treatments. Um, I studied a lot about um, uh, racism and race-based stress and trauma and intergenerational trauma and how to decolonize my thinking around mental health and embracing anti-oppression anti practices in my, in my work. And um, I expanded my practice to include an international uh, therapist and she's out in the UK. And um, and uh, and then I added, uh, and I believe, I don't know of any other practice who does this. I, I feel like I'm the first one. It could be others out there, but I've added um, energetic and spiritual counselors to my to my practice, meaning, people that do tarot reading and um and um spiritual channeling and um all that sort of thing so they are members of my of my group practice now did i mention you're speaking about love language oh my goodness that is amazing i'm gonna go back just a little bit oh my gosh that was so good <laughs> But you said your goal was, and you got, you got your master's in 93. And mm -hmm. so you've been doing this thing a long time. Um, how did you know so early on in your career that your goal would be to have a diverse social work practice? Because I talked to a lot of younger social workers, I'm sure you do too. And they think that they only can be a medical, or they're only going to be a medical social worker, or they're only going to be a child welfare social worker. How did you know so early on in your career to be diverse in your social work practice? Mm. Mm. I, you know, I think um, I, I think everything kind of goes back to my upbringing. Um, I had a, a very um, I don't know the 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 family that I grew up in, the community that I grew up in. We didn't have limits. We didn't set limits on ourselves. Um, even down to the way we played with one another, the girls and the boys played together. Um, sports that were traditionally male sports and female sports. Now again, I come. I'm, I'm from a particular era, 
right? And so even back then, the boys, we would play football with them and they would even jump rope with us. Um, so we were very, uh, we were very progressive coming up in the 70s and the 80s. Um, that was a very progressive thing. So it kind of taught me um, tenacity. It taught me that there's no limits, that I can stretch, that I can get into spaces that I'm not um, normally invited in. And I get to be bold and and just make my, you know, just make my presence known as if it was a normal occurrence because it was <laughs> for us. Um, and I understand we were a bit of an anomaly um, for that time and for that environment that I grew up in, like in the the mean streets of the inner city, but we we made it happen. And I think that just kind of stuck with me. It's like, I see something, I like to, you know, look at it expansively and figure out a way that I can bring my creative self to the space and widen it and not be held back by so many restrictions. I love it. I absolutely love it. And I'm curious, I'm going to keep on moving forward. How did you get introduced to hypnotherapy? And are those what the, the additional letters behind your name mean? Do you mind mm -hmm. explaining those? Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I got involved with hypnosis and hypnotherapy by attending a conference, actually. And the conference was a professional conference with CEUs. It was in uh, Savannah, Georgia. And it was probably around 2011 or 2012, somewhere in there. And um, it the conference had was about substance use. And so I was going there with the full knowledge that I was going to learn about substance abuse and use and dependency. And um, one speaker, one facilitator talked about her use of hypnosis in helping clients with uh, substance use. And I was like, so, as soon as she said that, my ears perked up because I probably was not paying a whole lot of attention. The conference was kind of boring. And when she came up, I, I sat up, I leaned in, I was like, whoa. And it just spoke to everything that I had been knowing and practicing silently, because like you said, back then, it wasn't easy to just talk about spirituality and energy and healing modality, not, you know, unconditional or non-traditional, unconventional. Yes. Yes. Right. So at that time, it was, it was um, not... Uh, an average, a, a normal occurrence for people to talk about um, non-conventional non treatment modalities. So I, it perked me up and I was leaning in and um, everything she said just spoke to me. And so after that, I tried to find her and I couldn't find her. Um, but then I Googled her and was researching her and I found her and I was so excited. And she, you know, she didn't have a whole lot of time and space to talk to me. Um, I wanted to know where she got her training. How did she do it? And um, she offered a training, but it was, it wasn't cost, uh, uh, it was cost prohibitive. I couldn't afford it. And, um, and it was sporadic. It didn't happen often. And I, it just didn't line up. And then one day I found this, um, this beautiful uh, black woman that said she was a hypnotist and she just spoke so eloquently and so beautifully about everything, all things spiritual. And I was like, wow, I have to find out who she is. And I looked her up and I called her and contacted her. We arranged a, a phone call 
And she just encouraged me to get further training. She told me where she got her training. And she, and I went like I on her word alone. I don't think I've ever done that because she was a stranger to me. Um, I spoke to her in January and February. I was packing my bags, going out to um, New Mexico to get trained. And my husband thought I lost my mind, but that's another story for another day. <laughs> I love it. I love it. And then shortly after that, that's when you open your private practice. Um, and before I move from the, the hip, I, I call it a hypnotherapy. If that's not right, I, I apologize. Mm -mm, Is that before I move away from that energy, what have been some of the benefits for you as a practitioner and then also for your clients, um, clients who are able to receive those services? Mm. So there's many benefits of um, hip, hypnosis and hypnotherapy. Um, for me personally, I used it actually to overcome test anxiety. Um, test anxiety was a big thing that I that I struggled with throughout my entire life. And even during the time that I took my uh, licensing exam, it was huge. Um, even passing the exam to finish the hypnosis training, right? So it was during the hypnosis training that I was addressing uh, test anxiety for the first time. And so, um, so since then, um, you know, after I got the hypnosis, I went and took my test that I had been avoiding for many years and I passed it on the first time. And I, um, you would not have been able to tell me that previously that I would have passed it on the first time because so many people around me were failing it multiple times. Um, so then I was like, okay, this stuff really works. And so it, it's become a big part of my practice, helping other people overcome test anxiety using hypnosis. So, and I've even helped, um, I have a video on YouTube where I've helped a colleague who also had test anxiety and he was actually a hypnotist himself. And he came to me and after about four sessions, he passed the exam that he couldn't pass in, in five attempts. So after working with me, he was able to pass it and... Yeah. So it's, I, it's a lot of other I bet. stories. Yeah. Yeah. I bet. Yeah. We're going to make sure under your um, podcast episode description, we have ways to contact you and also that YouTube video, because I know people want to, especially the audience that we are speaking to, a lot of folks are having test anxiety. So that may be um, helpful for them. I love the word that you used. I can't remember when you used it in your story, but anomaly, right? I love that word. And you you, you said that it wasn't um, spirituality in our our practice, our therapeutic practice isn't was not talked about. And I and my first thought was, is it talked about still? Like I know that there's a whole spiritual community out there, but within this practice, social work practice. And spirituality, that's one of my my things that I'm really passionate about. How were you able to merge those two? I know you already kind of know what you're going to say. It was your background. But how are you being an anomaly still? Or do you think there it's becoming more common um, for us to talk about social work practice and spirituality together? I do think that it is becoming more common. 
I don't think is at the level that it can be at this point. And I don't really, you're, you probably have, you definitely have more connection with, with uh, academia than I do. Um, so it's been a while since I, you know, been in a classroom setting and, and so forth. So I don't really know what they're teaching. I know based off of what professionals share with me once they've left the academic uh, setting and they're still saying that there is not there or it's not as prevalent. Um, so I just see post-grads really implementing it on their own. They have, have had to learn how to do it from other people like me and other people to say, well, how are you doing it? And then they maybe model with what they're doing from, from someone like me. I'm not the only one, obviously, but um, those that are out there doing it, they kind of model it after them. And we just, you know, we kind of search all the, the rules and regulations, the ethics to see where it fits in, if it fits in, if we decide it doesn't fit in, I'm okay with that because I can justify what I'm doing. Um, then we just kind of lead with that. I love it. I absolutely love it. Um, I love that you brought into your group practice because when people are talking about group practices, they're always usually talking about other um, board licensed professionals like, you know, the LMSW, the LC, LMFT, all of that. But you brought in spiritual practitioners. Where did that idea come from and what has been the results of being able to bring them into your practice? Yeah. Well, it came from two places. One place was that I consider myself to be a holistic practitioner myself, mind, mind body, and spirit, or sometimes I say soul-centered uh, practitioner. And so I wanted to just embody that, you know, if I'm saying that's who I am, let me truly embody what that looks like. And then let me couple that with me decolonizing my practice to say, you know, <laughs> the, the colonial way of seeing group practices is not to incorporate energy and spiritual practitioners. And because my goal is to like deconstruct and decolonize those practices, I wanted to introduce that to my practice. So that was one thing. The second thing is a lot of my clients tell me that they have a reader or a spiritual guide or a spiritual counselor or a seer or a, um, you know, out of all the names, uh, mystic or, and I'm like, wow. And I, it was becoming a repetitive story that my clients were telling me. And so I realized that there is a community of people needed to help a person reach healing right? Or at least be on the journey toward healing. And so these people were very important um, aspects of that healing journey. And I wanted to be able to offer that so that they can come to me and see that I have those people as well and offer that solution and that service to them as well as newcomers coming in. Yeah. And has it been successful so far? Yeah, you know, it just started this year. So January, we just added our spiritual and energetic healers and practitioners. Mm -hmm. So we get referrals from within our group and from without. Um, I guess that's considered success to me mm -hmm. because it's an offering and then people are using it. So I would say yes.
That's what success looks like. Yes, absolutely. Congratulations on that. That is huge and very dynamic. I love that so much. I, I'm going to move away from your journey. I could I could ask you so many more questions, but I will go ahead and move away. A big reason I'm doing this podcast is to promote the importance of being in community with other social workers. I'm curious, Gina, what social work communities do you belong to or create it yourself? And what have you learned about yourself from participating in those communities? Yes, yes. So I belong to clinicians of color. And there is a Facebook group, but then there's also a paid membership. And um, the paid membership is called, the acronyms are C-O-C-O-A, COCO. And, um, and there, there is a community of, um, it's not just social workers though, but, it, but the, the two founders or one of the founders is a social worker. Um, and so the vast majority of the people, I don't know, they just gravitate toward that. So I belong to that community. I also belong to the National Association of Social Workers. I sit on the committee of the Social and Economic Justice and Peace Committee. So our responsibility is to um, write and, uh, and offer articles and information uh, around social and economic justice. And um, that's a two-year term. And um, I'm hoping to renew my term because I really enjoy being on that committee. Um, I'm a former member of the um, Association of Black Social Workers. And in fact, they just reached out to me recently to do a, a speaking engagement with them. And um, I belong to several other societies and, um, and professional organizations. Mm -hmm. And oh, and lastly, um, I belong to uh, some sort of anti-racist organizations where we um, are kind of we're community organizers around um, sort of um, undoing racism and things like that. Absolutely. I love, thank you so much for the work that you are doing. That's a lot. And just, but thank you so much for the work you're doing. I, you know, I'm selfishly asking this question. Here you are again, I'm going to use the word that you use. I loved it so much. Anomaly. You're a non, you're an anomaly in your group practice with bringing in different practitioners, spiritual and energetic healers. And then you're also sitting on this very old school, traditional NASW board. How do, do you, I think I know the answer, but I still just want to hear it. You, you bring your authentic self to that NASW committee. And how is that, you know, received? <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's a good point. Um, well, thank God I didn't create the committee. They already had that committee. So that means that there's some interest there, right? So um, in order for me to be on such an old sort of organization, um, the, the newness about it is committees like that, that are really looking to challenge the, the larger um, organization as a whole and its practices, including those test-taking um, statistics that came out around um, Black and um, BIPOC people. So that feels like my contribution to helping to challenge those systems and the status quo. Um, that's my contribution, like my internal contribution. So that's how I'm able to rationalize that in my mind. 
So, yeah. <laughs> I hear you. I hear you. I love it. And thank you for doing that work too, right? Because, you know, we could go all the way left, but the right is what built us up. And so how can we bring those two in the middle so that we can work together and be and sustain the profession? So thank you so much for doing that work. I also know, Gina, that you've created some communities. Do you want to speak to maybe one or two of the communities you've created? Yeah, so I have... Um... I have a, um, I do have a test anxiety Facebook group um, for um, social workers and other mental health professionals. So we get together and talk about challenges and so forth. That's a free group that anyone can join. Um, I have a group for Black women called Tap Into Wellness that's actually starting in a few days. Um, it's a virtual group for women and we'll do a lot of holistic um, practices to help heal ourselves, whether we talk or tap on our, on our bodies, um, using the EFT method or one similar, um, mindfulness and breath work and body work, um, maybe even some self-hypnosis. So that's a group, that's a six week group. And that one starts on, I have one that starts on the 12th and another one starts on the 18th. The one on the 18th is for women that are, um, need to be in a community as they uh, sort of work through anxiety related to having an STD or STI. And that was born from a need um, that my um, constituents were sharing with me that this is a, a huge problem that they were facing. And so I create, anytime I, I'm a social worker, anytime I find out that there's a problem, I try to come up with a solution. And so that group also is virtual. And it's really just trying to dismantle the shame, the fear, the anxiety around having an STI or STD. Um, and then lastly, I'm going to be launching a, um, a training program where I will be teaching other people how to um, be a hypnotherapist. And, um, and I'll be teaching professionals as well as lay persons. And I will be offering um, certification uh, for some people who want that. I love it. It feels like, I think the number, if I'm a social worker, not a mathematician, I think the number is 180, a full 180 from the beautiful Black queen you talked to that got you into your hypnotherapy certification. And now here you are, a beautiful mm. Black queen. Oh. Yes. It's a, is that 180 or 360? <laughs> <laughs> but it feels like a full circle yeah. moment. We'll just say that. It feels yeah. like a full circle moment. Oh, that is so great. And we'll make sure that we have all any and all links that you, you wish to share with us so that people can get in contact with you. Um, Gina, what's one belief about social work that has changed for you since you started this journey way back in 93? Mm. Yeah. Well, I think the belief is that social workers have to make a vow of poverty. <laughs> I think that that has changed tremendously since the time I was in graduate school. Um, I started in, I mean, not graduate school, just college, right? Started in 1986. And during that time, it was all about um, really instilling in us that we won't make any money. This is not something to get into. If you want to make money, you do this for the people, for the love of it, for the love of helping. And though all of that is true, you should do it for the love of helping and assisting and supporting. And because you love your fam your, your communities um, and the people that you serve, absolutely. 
But I also think that we've evolved to a place where you can do that and still make a decent uh, wage, right? And um, some people make more than a decent wage. Some people do very well for themselves. And I think mainly because social work is so expansive, you can work for a nonprofit and they can give you a salary, but then you can also do something else with your skills and your values and your knowledge right? We don't have to be stuck in one thing. You know, a lot of social workers teach, you know, part-time or teach full-time and do a private practice part-time, or, you know, they created a product or service. Um, I did create a product. Um, I have uh, affirmation cards that I created. And, um, and so you can create books, you can write books, you can write, you know, create workbooks, um, cards, you can create t-shirts, um, journals, you know, so you can create products and services so you don't have to be stuck in a certain um, income bracket if you don't want to. So I think we have a lot more options nowadays. Completely agree. I really do. That was so good. Um, I'm going to move to our last question. This was such a great conversation. Your, you know, the word that just listening to you and reading your bio that kept coming up for me is revolutionary. You are such a revolutionary and the work that you're doing within our profession is so exciting. What advice would you give our audience listening who know there is more than what they learned in the classroom that can help the healing journey for themselves and their clients, but they're just too scared to step out into those spaces that feel more authentic for them. Yeah. <clears throat> um, I would say, and I understand it's not easy. It wasn't easy for me. So I don't want to convey that I, that this was so easy for me to step in. I think everything that's worth something has its, its challenges. Um, I would just say kind of bring your, you know, find out the things that you enjoy, that you like, that you're passionate about, that you have a natural proclivity toward and try to weave it in the fabric of your social work practice, whether it's spirituality, whether it's social justice, whether it's um, crystals or aromatherapy or yoga, like you can figure out, you know, people have blended yoga in, in with trauma-informed practices, right? So if you love yoga, weave it in. If you love art, weave it in. If you love music, weave it into the fabric of your social work practice and make it make sense, you know, make it make sense to you. And then you can convey that to other people, you know, use the, the, the social work practices and our value system and our ethics and all the things that make us great social workers, find a way to, to pull those pieces out and then create something of your own you know, look, look at, and this is a, that's a decolonizing practice. You're saying that this is how things were traditionally done and I'm doing it differently. I'm, I'm appreciating the past and the pioneers and the people who laid the groundwork for me, but I'm also using that as a springboard to develop something new and to, to show up in a way that brings me joy because when you bring, when you have joy in this field, you're less likely to burn out. You know, you're, you're, you have more longevity because you actually love what you're doing because you're bringing in those pieces, your special gifts, 
your special talents and your special skills and you have, you know, woven them into your practice. Oh, that was so beautiful. I just want to have a moment just to thank your mother. Is that okay? I just want to thank your mama. Yeah. yeah, I received that. Yes, yeah. thank you. Thank you for acknowledging her. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you so much for, I'm so emotional. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much for coming on the Goddesses of Social Work podcast today. This was so cup feeling for me. And thank, just thank you for saying yes. Thank you yeah. for saying Thank you for inviting me. Yeah. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Goddesses of Social Work podcast. We are glad you were here. If you liked this episode, please come back to hear more stories of the journeys through social work and please leave us a review on Apple or Spotify. See you next time here on the Goddesses of Social Work podcast.